sometimes what you really want to do is first get is, is think of this as a two-step process. The first step is getting the policymaker to buy into the idea that prevention of something or other is feasible and important. And then the second step of it is saying, okay, you think we should do this. Can you let me tell you what the best way to do it is? On episode three of the Prevention Matters podcast, I speak with health economist, Dr. Sherry Gleed, Dean of New York University's Wagner School of Public Service. I ask her about her long career in health policy, how to influence prevention policy at the federal level, and discover what house she would be in in the Harry Potter wizarding world. All of that and more on this episode of the Prevention Matters podcast. The National Prevention Science Coalition is the premier professional association dedicated to translating scientific knowledge into effective and sustainable programs and policies to enhance the well-being of children, families, and communities. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. And now the host of the Prevention Matters podcast, Dr. Robert Lachos. Dr. Sherry Gleed is the Dean of New York University's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. She previously served on the faculty of the Melman School of Public Health at Columbia University and as the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at the Department of Health and Human Services and as a Senior Economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors under Presidents Bush and Clinton. Her main areas of research are in the areas of health policy reform and mental health care policy. She's authored a number of books, including Chronic Condition, published in 1998, and Better But Not Well, Mental Health Policy in the United States Since 1950, published in 2006. Dr. Gleed, welcome to the Prevention Matters podcast. Thank you. So why don't we begin by having you share a little bit about your background and experience in economics and health policy. Why study a a career in health policy? So I I actually trained as a straight-up economist. I have a PhD in in just plain vanilla economics. Um, And my specialty in graduate school is actually in a field called labor economics, which is about how the labor market works. Um, and my dissertation advisor, this was in the, in the mid to late 1980s, said, you know, there's going to be some really interesting labor economics questions around the HIV pan- epidemic because um, there might be reasons for employers. They, their employers might see themselves as having reasons to discriminate in different ways, and that would be an important thing to learn about. So I began to study the HIV ep- epidemic. and. In consequence of that, I learned about healthcare and health policy and health economics. Um, I wound up getting a job in health economics, and I learned even more about it. And it's just a truly fascinating field. Um, it's it's a really complicated field from an economic theory standpoint, uh, and it's a very rich field in terms of the data that are available. And it has these wonderful direct connections to public policy. So it has been a great career for me. So my experience has been with economists is that they're very good methodologists. Is that your sense as well? So economics is a field that at its very base um, worries about issues of causality. So what does that mean? Economists worry that if you see two things that happen in parallel, 
that you can't really infer from that that one of them has caused the other. Economists spend a lot of time really worrying about whether that kind of inference is appropriate or not. It's really a distinctive feature of the methodological aspects, the empirical aspects of the field. Um, and it's just baked into economic theory because if you've ever taken an economics class, you know that economics is built on the supply and demand. And when you observe something, you can't automatically tell whether the reason you see it is because of supply or because of demand. For that reason, um, from the very get-go, economists have really worried about trying to, do, to draw those kinds of inferences. Yeah, and I know you've done quite a bit of work looking at the U.S. healthcare system, you've argued for certain perspectives in terms of changes, and you've advised the federal government on how those changes might affect not only our economy, but healthcare status. But what I'm interested to learn in your experience, how is healthcare, that is clinical medicine, different from prevention? So clinical medicine is different from prevention for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is that when people use clinical care, they at least perceive that there is something wrong with them already. Whereas when they're investing in prevention, it is a more um, probabilistic uh, uh, relationship, right? So when we treat somebody for having a heart attack, we know that the person we are treating with a heart attack has had a heart attack, presumably, hopefully. Um, but when we try to prevent a heart attack, we have to actually um, administer that prevention to a lot of people who might never have had a heart attack at all. So when we do prevention, we have to treat a lot of people, even including a lot of people who would never have gotten the condition at all. That actually um, both makes the analysis more complicated, it actually makes the politics more complicated too. You, you talked about the idea that we have to intervene with people that may never be at risk, right? And so we're almost the uninvited guest in their lives. They don't want us. They're not asking for us. But when they go to seek health care, they're specifically asking for a service. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's been really interesting having conversations with people about the COVID vaccine and having people say, well, you know, I'm not going to get COVID anyway. And, you know, probably, I mean, they might well be right. They might well be wrong. Um, you're asking them to do something even if we don't even worry about the effects on other people just for themselves, that's probabilistic. And people have a very hard time with probabilities. Um, whereas if they already had, you know, gotten COVID, nobody would ask the question about whether they should be treated for it. I think that relates to something you talked about in your book, um, Chronic Condition, where you wrote that most Americans are far more likely to agree to pay for a child. I think you said getting rescued from a well than pain for prevention, like putting a lid on top of the well. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, my goodness, I can't believe you read it. All right. Um, so, you know, one of, the, we always see this, we actually, we are so excited about these heroic rescues of individual people. I mean, they're individual named people, you know who they are, they have life stories, and we're willing to spend enormous amounts of money to rescue people who we know who they are and, and they have life stories. That's, that's a natural human condition. It's not irrational or anything. It's the way that we as a, as a species exist. Um, that's how we relate to the world. But when we're talking about prevention, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to cap all the wells. People start saying, well, wait a minute, you know, is that a good idea? It's going to cause me some inconvenience. Uh, do we really need to do this? A lot of people are not going to drown in wells. We don't know which people they are. 
um, it's a much harder idea to wrap your head around. So um, we we endlessly see this. So I, I always, you know, I work, we, we endlessly see this debate in the following way. If I asked you whether we should approve some new cancer drug that would extend people's lives by a month, maybe on average, um, you know, most people would say yes. Um, if I asked you whether we should invest in a cancer treatment that might save the same lives, they will actually use a different standard. They'll ask whether that would save money. Nobody's asking whether the cancer treatment at the end of life would save money. Nobody, everyone knows it will not save money. But when we think about prevention, we're always trying to make the argument that the reason we need to do prevention is that it's going to save money. It's the wrong standard to be using. So the argument that I've often put forth to policymakers, and you know, I say this all the time to my students, is that you know, we spend, what, $1.5 trillion on chronic conditions alone in the United States, and 40% of those are almost completely preventable. We only spent 4% of that $1.5 trillion on prevention. There's been studies that have shown that early child interventions, you know, for every dollar you spend, you save eight over the lifetime of that child. Smoking cessation, for every dollar you spend, you save $45. Are those um, data points, those cost-benefit analysis, and, and on the other flip side of that, cost-effectiveness analysis, are those valuable to policymakers in your experience at the federal level? So um, it really depends. Um, the... At the federal level, um, the piece of it that always does go into the conversation is any savings that will accrue to the federal budget. The Congressional Budget Office is mandated to consider only the savings that will accrue to the federal budget. Sometimes they can actually make it sort of include some savings that accrue to state government budgets. Um, things that don't accrue to budgets, however, don't actually have a place in the federal um, policy discussion in terms of quantification. Um, at the same time, though, I think uh, the ro a robust literature around prevention can be pretty compelling to people. I, I am struck by the fact that, for example, the, the requirements in the Affordable Care Act that, that preventive services be provided without cost sharing uh, by insurance plans had tremendous bipartisan support, and in including some preventive services that are definitely not cost-saving. They may very well be cost-effective. They don't actually reduce money for the healthcare system. They just make people healthier, which is the standard we use for medical treatments. Um, so, so I think there is an appetite for prevention, but it doesn't. It's not always in terms of the cost-saving story. I think maybe it's more around. I mean, you're a psychologist around the sort of narrative story. We could save this person's life. We could prevent them from getting sick in the first place. And oftentimes that someone that we're asking to pay for that is a federal or state government. And, and you've worked at the federal level as a leader. And given, you know, the last couple of years and the debate people have had about science and, and research, um, how do you feel about the state of science and research in federal policymaking? Well, I guess it, it does depend somewhat on the party in power. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to say that in a, I don't, I don't, I'm trying not to be partisan here. I think there is, there are different um, positions about science. I think sometimes the different positions about science are actually also rooted in differences in um, beliefs and ideologies that we sometimes confuse with views about science. So you might, it's hard, you know, you might think that you might buy the evidence that, um, that 
shelter-in-place rules around COVID actually reduce the spread of COVID. And you still might say that they're not a good idea because of other things that you believe in. Um, so we, we should be a little bit careful, I think. Sometimes we say people are anti-science when we really mean that they have different views about priorities. I, I, I'm, on the, I'm of the view that we did well with the shelter-in-place rules, but, but I, I, we should be careful about whether it's an absolute indictment of science. I think one thing, so, so here's one thing I say, Robert, the same people who don't believe in science in some, in, with respect to public health, often are the, the greatest champions of science when it's about medical treatment. Um, uh, they're really into having the NIH invest in new drugs and therapies and all kinds of things, and they're very much against using standards to judge what is appropriate. So this is so confused with ideology in a, in a very troubling way. Um, I do think that in prevention, we've had, we do have some, not only in the, in the secondary prevention world, I think there have been some great efforts to do primary prevention and the federal budget has paid for it. I'm thinking about things like nurse home visiting, um, which was part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, which required the use of evidence-based, you know, rigorously tested home visiting programs and, and, and those went forward. They, they were, they were, uh, put into place, and, and, and so I think I'm, I'm not utterly pessimistic about the possibility of getting primary prevention into federal legislation, um, but it is a, an endless struggle and evidence of efficacy, evidence that the program really works, um, is extraordinarily important because there is a great deal of skepticism about public health programs simply because we don't know who's going to get sick afterwards and who isn't. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And what I'm curious to know is, you know, you're still, you know, in the classroom with with graduate students and and budding would be federal policymakers, or at least people who think they're going to influence federal policy. What's one piece of advice you give them? So they're an economist, they're going to be a political scientist. What's one piece of advice do you give them when dealing with Congressional staff, members of Congress, um, staff at federal agencies. So I guess the, the most important advice and one that you surely know as a journalist is um, narrative is much more compelling than statistic. So what you really want to do is you want to be able to come up with your carefully done study and be able to explain it. And then you want to be able to tell a story, ideally a real story, about how it actually matters to individual people. So people have a way to anchor that statistic in their heads. Um, that's, that's actually, you know, those, those narratives are very, very powerful, more powerful than my saying there's a five times return. Um, if I can say, here are five people who would not have been in the circumstances they are if we had taken care of their apartment or if we had given them uh, nurse home visiting or whatever, that actually, that's something that, that politicians are, are much better able to process. After all, most of them are lawyers, right? They're, they're people who live in the world of cases, not in the world of data. I, I think that's a very good analogy. But I think, unfortunately, what we do is spend a lot of time in graduate school teaching students how to do null hypothesis significance testing, write an APA format. Um, we teach them how to do structural equation modeling. And we don't spend enough time saying, how would you explain this to your grandmother? I mean, can you imagine trying to explain to somebody 
the cost benefit of early childhood interventions across the child's lifespan in a way you could do that to hold a policymaker's attention? Yeah, I mean, I think some people do do it and they talk about, you know, two kids, one grows up in one neighborhood and the other one doesn't. And and what happens to them over their lifetime? You know, what what or even just trying to relate it to people's lives, kids who can sit still do better in school. I mean, that's something people can understand. I think if you throw a structural equation model at them, they're going to be really skeptical. And I don't blame them. It's really hard to understand it. I mean, there are other, I would also say we have increasingly, we increasingly use empirical methods that can be um, described in graphics. That's a lot better than doing it with numbers. Um, showing, you know, before this program, this is what things looked like, and here's what happened when the program, and you know, was, was implemented. There is a place for, for significance testing and for structural equation modeling. I think we need to build an evidence base, and it's tremendously important that we ground our policies in good evidence. Um, but when we're selling them, that's probably not the thing that's most important. Yeah, and I think for me, it's been very, very difficult to present information to policymakers in such a way that it's going to influence their decision-making. But one of the things that I will say is every person, including yourself, that I have interviewed for this podcast has said the same exact thing you said. Do not present data, present stories. And that has just been a consistent theme. Let me also note another thing that, that strikes me as we as we talk about it. Sometimes what you really want to do is first get is, is think of this as a two-step process. The first step is getting the policymaker to buy into the idea that prevention of something or other is feasible and important. And then the second step of it is saying, okay, you think we should do this. Can you let me tell you what the best way to do it is? And sometimes we conflate those. So we, we're trying to sell the policymaker both on the idea of doing the thing in the first place and the best way to do it. It's too much information. They don't want to be convinced about the best way to do it until they're convinced that they can do it in the first place. So we're going to move on to the speed round here. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Just answer as, as quick as you can. We'll try to yeah. get through as many questions as we can in one minute. minute. Just tell me the first thing that pops into your head. Are you ready? Yeah. What is one hobby you wish you had more time for? Practicing piano. Um, well, you're from Canada. Tim Hortons or Starbucks? Tim Hortons. What's something you'd like to learn how to do? Hang glide. Um, if you went to Hogwarts, the school that Harry Potter went to, which house would you be sorted in? Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, or Slytherin? Oh, I sure hope I'm for Gryff Gryffindor. My kids would not forgive me otherwise. <laughs> if you could go back in time and visit your 14-year-old self, what would you tell her? It's going to be all right. Um, it's, I think one thing that people, so here's, a, I think, you know, life gets better. 14 is an awful age. Things get better. Well, Dr. Sherry Gleed, thank you for your time and thank you for being on the Prevention Matters podcast. All right. Well, let me know when your podcast is done so I can link to it or whatever. And, and thanks for doing it. You bet. Thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. The Prevention Matters podcast is the official podcast of the National Prevention Science Coalition. 
To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please click on the subscribe button.